invite you to open back up to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 as we continue looking at the transformation of Saul of Tarsus who would later be called Paul. What a great testimony and salvation story that he has here in Acts 9. But before we look at this text together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you as we learned in Sunday school that you've inspired it. We thank you for those who have written it, for those who have died for it, for those who have communicated it to us. I thank you for my pastor over the years who faithfully preached God's word to me even when I was young and who instructed me on in how I should live. And God, may we today be instructed and built up in your word. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. When I was growing up, one of the first things I can remember learning was how a caterpillar turned into a butterfly. This is a pretty simple science type um, lesson that a teacher would give. And it would, they would talk about how a caterpillar would just be going around and all of a sudden it would kind of get bigger and bigger and bigger and then form a chrysalis. And then would be in that chrysalis for a certain amount of time and form into a butterfly in there. It's such a beautiful process that it goes through. Now, a a caterpillar is not very nice to look at when you first see it, although my little siblings used to love to play with caterpillars, and my dog tries to eat them when we're on a walk. But when they turn into a butterfly, it's just so beautiful when they're flying around and around flowers and things like that. One of the things I was surprised of when I was reading about this this week is that if you try to open up the chrysalis too soon, the butterfly dies. In fact, some have seen a butterfly kind of struggling to get out of the chrysalis. And so people have thought, oh, I'll go help the butterfly. But actually during that time, the butterfly is strengthening its muscles and developing its body so that it can escape on its own and be strong enough to fly and do what it needs to do. Oftentimes in the Christian life, we go through things that I call growing pains. And there's a variety of different types of growing pains. Some people, when they first get saved, maybe they come from a background where they've struggled with sin and different problems. And they have a hard time getting over some of those things. And it's a process where they've accepted the gospel, but they still need to grow in Christ and renounce their sin over time. We can't expect people to change in some of those sinful habits just overnight. Now, for some, they were saved, and they just immediately gave all of that up, and I praise God for that. But oftentimes, we go through things that are growing pains. Other Christians, like we'll see with Saul today, go through persecution. He had an old life. He had an old way of doing things, being a Jewish person. And when he converted to the gospel, he faced great persecution. We know that there's thousands, even probably millions of Christians around the world who will face far more persecution in their life than we will. And in saying yes to the gospel, they're saying no to their family. There are Christians who are shunned. There are Christians who are thrown in jail. There are Christians who are killed once they accept Christ. There's other things that believers can struggle with as well. Some of us can struggle to understand the doctrines of Scripture. How many of us understood the Trinity once we were first saved? How many of us understand the Trinity now? There are different things that we struggle and we grow in and we learn as we are growing 
in Christ. And in our text today, we see a newly converted Saul of Tarsus. Now, he didn't have the same sinful habits that he once had, and he was a very knowledgeable man about the Bible. But we start seeing how God is working in his life and growing him into being the man that we see right half of the New Testament. And so as we look at this together, maybe you can identify with Saul today and the different persecutions and trials he goes through. Maybe you can't, but in your own way, you've experienced these growing pains in your life. What, do, what did Saul need? What do we need? Well, I would say the answer is edification. Edification is a big word that means to build up, to strengthen, to encourage. It can also have some hints of correction and even rebuking if it needs to. We're edified through reading God's word, obviously, but we're also in scripture told that we're edified through the body of Christ. What I want us to see this morning in Acts 9 is that Saul of Tarsus, who would later become Paul, is edified in the body of Christ. And it's something we should remember, that new believers, whether they're in our, our church, whether they're in our family, whether they're just someone we meet, they need edification. They need to be encouraged. They need to be built up. They need to be strengthened in the body of Christ. But I don't want us to just stop there. We should be the ones to encourage them and strengthen them and build them up. And so in this passage, I think we see two different aspects of edification, of building up, of Saul being trained and encouraged. And the first aspect we see is that edification happens over time. Edification happens over time. Look with me at the end of verse 19. We looked at the beginning of verse 19. At the end of our sermon last week, we're going to pick up at the end of verse 19. It says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now what we're going to see in Saul's conversion experience is that he's going to go to two different places. First he's in Damascus. And those believers actually accept Saul pretty easily. They welcome Saul in because they can see his conversion, because they've heard his testimony, because they will later see him proclaim the gospel. And so he was with the disciples at Damascus And in verse 20, it says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Now, I don't know about you when you were saved, when you trusted Christ, but I was not ready necessarily to go share the gospel the next day. But actually in Saul's life, we see he was preaching the gospel. He was sharing the gospel with others in the city. He was doing it in the synagogues. The synagogues were the Jewish Churches. They were where they gathered for worship. You might ask, why did Saul go to the synagogues? It's because that's where the Jewish people were. And he would go there and he would preach the gospel to them. Notice he said that he is the son of God. In the Jewish faith, they understood who God was. They understood different aspects of God and the Bible. And they knew how to live. But they had not accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And so what Saul was doing, he was explaining from the Old Testament even how Jesus was the Son of God. We've seen that as we studied Acts, right? That Peter and Stephen and all these different people, even Philip, used the Old Testament to show 
that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, like we were talking about in Sunday school today, sometimes we don't like reading some of the Old Testament. Sometimes the Old Testament can be tricky for us to understand, yet it's God's Word. And God, even in the Old Testament, points us to this person who is Jesus Christ revealed in the New Testament and how he is the Son of God. So this was Saul's mission. This was what he set out to do. And again, immediately after he was saved. Notice the reaction to this in verse 21. It says, And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? They're saying, wait a second, we've, we've heard of this guy, but we thought he was going to come here and persecute Christians. Now, I think at this point, these are Christians who are saying this, or they're at least not Jewish people, because we're going to see in a few moments the Jews react to Saul's teaching, and they are not going to be as enthusiastic about it. And so some of the disciples accept Saul immediately, and some of them here are a little bit apprehensive. They're wondering, hey, we thought this was the guy that was going to come kill us and put us in jail. They're definitely not objecting to the fact that he's preaching Christ. But notice they use that word, it says, is this not the man who made havoc? Or maybe your translation says something else. It means to cause a mess, to stir up, to have utter destruction. This is what Saul did to the church. Remember back in Acts 8, it said Saul was ravaging the church. It's like an animal that's tearing up its food. I told you before, Mac, when he gets a toy, he just can't help it. He loves to tear it up and you know rip its head off and things like that. And figuratively, this is what Saul was doing to the church. Notice the end of what they say. It says, and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring us bound before the chief priests? Remember, Saul, in last week's sermon at the beginning of Acts 9, Saul went to the chief priests and said, hey, can I go persecute Christians in Damascus? Bring them back here so that they can be on trial. And of course, the chief priests accepted that. That was why he went there in the first place. But then we come to an interesting portion in our text in verse 22. The little phrase, we might miss it as we first read over it. Notice what it says, but Saul increased more in strength. Now, why am I taking time to pause on this? If you know your New Testament exceptionally well, you'll know that Saul spent some time outside of Damascus during this time period but luke doesn't record it in acts in fact this is really i think the only reference that he gives to it paul actually records it later in galatians so so turn with me to galatians chapter one for just a few moments i'm going to take a rabbit trail because this is an important part of what saul is doing during this time galatians chapter one if you know anything about the book of galatians you'll know that it's the only letter that saul that paul starts And he doesn't thank the Christians there. Most of the time he says, hey, I'm thankful for you. I'm praying for you. You guys are doing well at this. And then he'll tell them what he really needs to tell them so that they can improve on it. That is not necessarily how he starts Galatians. He has his normal introduction in verses 1 through 5. Then look at verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The Galatian church was so confused and messed up on the gospel that Paul's saying, I don't have anything good to tell you. 
In fact, I only have a rebuke to give you because they were forsaking the gospel. And so he spends his letter explaining what the gospel is. And in this first chapter, he's talking about how this gospel wasn't just his idea. He didn't just come up with it, but that it's God's gospel that's been given to him. Look a little bit farther down in verse 8. He says, But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. How serious is Paul about preaching the right gospel? Paul says, Look, if I change my mind at some point and I start preaching to you a different gospel, I'm accursed. And that's the strongest curse that he could give someone in that moment. He says, Even if an angel came to church one day, and you could imagine that if an angel walked through the doors, you know, and an angel started to preach to you a different gospel, Paul's saying, Guess what? He's accursed as well. You shouldn't mess with the gospel. And so in chapter 1, he's trying to show how this gospel wasn't just his idea, but that it's something given from God for the church. And that brings us to why I'm going to Galatians 1 in the first place. Look at verse 16. 15, actually. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So he talks about earlier how he was a Jewish person. He was a zealous Jewish person persecuting the Christian church. But what happened? Well, what we talked about last week, God saved him. God revealed Jesus Christ, his son, to Paul. He saved him and he actually gives him this commission to preach to the Gentiles but notice in verse 17, it said, in the, at the end of verse 16, it says, Nor did I immediately consult with anyone. Verse 17, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia. You might say, wait a second, I thought Saul was in Damascus. Saul takes an extended trip to Arabia, which is not necessarily Saudi Arabia like we think of it, it was actually a little bit just north of Damascus in what we would probably consider as modern-day Syria. He takes this extended trip here, and there's some questions about what he was doing there. It says he went away to Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. Now, total, he was in Arabia and Damascus for three years. We see that in verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. And so the question is, what was he doing here? Some people say, oh, he was just going there to train. Others say he was sharing the gospel there. And I would say the answer is yes. He was doing both of those things. He was meditating on scripture. He was praying. And God was giving him further revelation. He talks about that. But also, he was ministering the gospel there in Arabia. Now turn very quickly to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. It's probably a couple pages back in your Bible. And look at verse 32. Second Corinthians is a book where Paul is defending his apostleship. And he is talking about his sufferings as an apostle. And he brings up this scene here. Look with me at verse 32. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through the window in the wall and escaped his hands. This king, King Aretas, was actually the king of Nabita, which would be Arabia, where Paul was during that time. You might ask, why was he putting a siege around Damascus? 
Well, it's probably because when Saul was in Arabia, they ran into each other at some point. He was probably preaching the gospel there, and this king probably wanted Saul arrested. And so this is, again, another little hint at what Saul was doing during those three years. Now, I want to finally finish this little rabbit trail with this question. Why doesn't Luke talk about any of this? You know, Saul is a pretty important character in the book of Acts. Why would Luke not include any of this? And this gets back to, I think, the purpose of the book of Acts. Is Acts a book about Paul? No, it's not. Is Acts a book about Peter? No, it's actually a book about Christ and Christ's gospel. And while Saul shared the gospel in Arabia, he was also being trained there. And Luke might not have even known as much of what happened during that time. And so I think Luke focuses on Saul's conversion and just gives us this little phrase here that Saul increased more in strength and doesn't allude to his time in Arabia because he was focused on just the spreading of the gospel. He's looking at things from a more macro level than a micro level with Saul. Let's finally look at the rest of verse 22 together. Not only did Saul increase more in strength, but it also says he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That word confounded means to dismay, to confuse, to stir up. He was telling them that Jesus was the Christ. And you can imagine being a Jew, you thought, wait a second, this guy's going to come here and persecute Christians. They weren't expecting him to preach the gospel They're expecting him to persecute the Christians who are there. Verse 23 talks about how there were many days that had passed, and the Jews plotted to kill him. Another translation of that could be a sufficient number or a certain number of days had passed. It means both the Jews just got tired of Saul because he was preaching the gospel, and they said, we got to get rid of this guy somehow. But I also think it indicates that God was ready for Saul to move on and go somewhere else. And so the Jews start plotting to kill Saul, but somehow, and we're not told how, Saul becomes aware of their plot. And so they're watching the gates, and we again, we looked at that in 2 Corinthians 11, how this king set a siege around the gate. There was nowhere for him to go. But in verse 25 it says, But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now notice that little phrase that says, his disciples. Saul was there for a considerable amount of time, and he even had his own disciples, not that he was replacing Christ, but he had his own people that he was teaching and influencing while he was there. And they were the ones that helped him escape by lowering him over the wall in this basket. And thus his time in Damascus comes to an end. I can remember growing up when I was a kid, I was always just a little bit taller than everyone. I know you can't imagine that, but I was always just a little bit taller than the other kids in my class. But something that came with that was growing pains. When I would lay in my bed at night, sometimes my calves or legs would just hurt from growing and getting bigger. And I asked my mom, I said, what can I do about it? And she said, just drink milk, but not really anything. So I remember having those growing pains, but I was also, when I'd get them, I was excited because I knew I was just getting a little bit bigger and a little bit taller. But it came with a little bit of pain as well as I was 
growing. I can remember being young and really small and imagining, you know, how long is it going to take for me to be six foot three and thinking, man, that is going to take a long time. And it did for the most part, but yet that time of development and growing as a child is necessary. Here we see in Acts 9, Saul takes some time to grow and to meditate. He takes some time to learn. Now, we're not introduced to any of his mentors. We know that he talks about receiving some revelation from Christ, Stephen, during this time. But while Saul immediately goes and preaches the gospel, he also takes some time to prepare for his ministry. Oftentimes, when we deal with younger believers, we can become frustrated by the fact that they're not growing, that they don't look and act like we do, that maybe they still struggle with some of their former sins. And we're not told that Saul necessarily had any sins that he was struggling with during this time, but I do find it interesting that Saul took time to learn and grow here in Acts 9. It's a reminder to me that, you know, Paul is a much better Christian than I am. He was appointed by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so the people that I disciple, the people that I know, the new Christians in my life, I need to be patient with. I need to remember in myself that I didn't understand all the doctrines and lingo of Christianity right from the beginning, but that it took me time as well. And I by no means am a finished project, and neither are any of us. That takes us time to grow in Christ as well. So as we think about this, first of all, ask yourself the question, am I in Christ? One of the beautiful things about Acts 9 is this immediate transformation of Saul's life. He wasn't a perfect Christian. He wasn't a grown Christian yet. But right from his conversion, he was transformed. He was a new creature. Are you in Christ? Have you experienced the saving power of the gospel like Saul did? Do you share the gospel with others? Yes, it takes time for us to learn and grow. And you might wonder, I don't know what to say. I don't know what I would tell someone. Well, Saul was a Christian for a couple of days and he was already sharing the gospel with others. And you know, that's a beautiful thing about new believers is oftentimes they are the most zealous and excited and ready to share the gospel. And some of us who have been Christians for a long time can look at that and we can be encouraged as well. That's one of the beautiful things I think in this sermon is that we not only see Saul growing and being edified, but as he is grown and edified through the church, the church is edified and built up as well. We'll see that at the end. Look with me. Secondly, we see another aspect of edification that it happens through mature believers. We're going to see we spent point number one looking at Saul's time in Damascus. We're going to spend this next point looking at his time in Jerusalem. So look with me at verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. We can see if we go back to Galatians 1, and you don't have to turn there. He talks about wanting to go and meet Peter. In fact, he stayed with Peter for a little bit of this time. But things weren't exactly easy for him to join the church when he first got there. And you can understand why. 
he'd been persecuting the church. They had friends, loved ones, that Saul had probably thrown in jail. So he probably wouldn't be welcome at their Christian gatherings. He's attempting to join the disciples, but it said they were all afraid of him. They were all worried about what he would do to them. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. People in Damascus were pretty quick to accept Saul's conversion, but they also saw him preaching the gospel. The people in Jerusalem, the Christians in Jerusalem, wanted a little bit more proof. They needed a little bit more convincing. And also think about this. He'd been gone for probably about three years. So this guy was persecuting the church. He's gone for three years. And now he comes back and says he's a Christian. They were pretty skeptical of what Saul was trying to do. Yet Saul finds a friend. And I love this part of Acts 9 and verse 27. We come back to a character named Barnabas. It says, And Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Who is Barnabas? Well, we ran into him back in Acts 4. He sold a lot of his property and gave that money to the poor and to the widows. He was called by the disciples a son of encouragement. How would you like that to be your nickname? Son of encouragement. And what did Barnabas do? He took Paul under his wing. That phrase that is used there in verse 27, it says, took him. It can also be translated as taking someone under your wing to, trans or to train them or even to mentor them. So he took him. He confirmed the message. Remember back in Acts 8, there was Simon the magician who claimed salvation, but then wanted to buy the Holy Spirit's power with money. We talked about how in conversion, we should celebrate it, but we should also confirm it. So I imagine that Barnabas took time and listened to Saul and his message, and then confirmed that he was actually a believer. So Barnabas comes, he takes him under his wing, he then brings him to the disciples, and he goes up to bat for Saul. He talks about how he had heard Saul's testimony of how Christ had spoken to him on the road of Damascus, how Saul had preached the gospel in Damascus, and how people were getting saved. He was preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And we're not told how the disciples responded, but it's obvious from Acts that they accepted the words of Barnabas. Now, why did they believe Barnabas and not Saul? He was older. He'd been a Christian for longer. He was known by that church. He'd been doing good things in the church in Jerusalem. And he was known as a son of encouragement, a mentor for Saul. Back in Galatians 1, we read that he was there for 15 days before he moves on again. And what was he doing for those 15 days? We'll look at verse 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He continued to preach the gospel in and out of the town, in and out of the synagogues. He was there proclaiming Christ once again. I think from the Old Testament, because that's what they had at that moment. But giving testimony to Christ 
and what Christ had done. Now notice a specific group of people latches on to Saul and tries to slow him down. It says in verse 29, And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Who were the Hellenists? If you look back at Acts 6, you see that they were the Greek Jews who were living there during that time. They converted to Judaism, but they still practiced Greek culture. They still lived like Greek people. And so the question comes up, why did they target Saul? Well, if you remember back in Acts 6, they also targeted Stephen as well. And they started disputing with him. So you can imagine the same people, or at least types of people, who were upset with Stephen and his sermon were also upset with Saul as well. And they began to dispute with him. But similarly to Stephen, they couldn't withstand Saul's power. He was already a smart man even before he was a Christian. And God is using him in mighty and powerful ways here to preach the gospel. So he speaks and disputes with them, but then they try to kill him. Notice what is following him around. Persecution. Suffering. And that is going to be a theme in his life. You might ask, why does this follow him around? Look back in Acts 9 at what God says to Ananias. Look at verse 16. It says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, all Christians are called to suffering for Christ, yes. But we know that Paul specifically had a ministry where he would suffer for the gospel. And so this persecution seems to be following him around wherever he would go. This is part of Saul's experience as a new Christian. You can imagine for some new Christians, they might be afraid. They might be worried about this persecution, but Saul remained faithful. He remained faithful to preach the gospel. But I want to point something out here. He didn't stay in the city. In fact, look at verse 30. And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him on to Tarsus. Why did he not stay? He was willing to die for his faith. He's willing to suffer for the gospel. And this brings up something interesting, I think, about these apostles. They were persecuted. They never rejected the gospel. They never denounced Christ. But they also didn't die if they didn't have to. They would move on at different points. They would, as one commentator I read said, they would live to preach another day. And so sometimes they would move on to different cities in order to share the gospel some more. Now you might ask, why did he, why did he go to Caesarea and then to Tarsus? Well, Caesarea was probably just a stopping point on the way to Tarsus. It was a big city. In fact, Caesarea was the fifth largest city in the Roman Empire. And then he would go on to Tarsus. Now remember, that is his home. That's where he's from in Sicilia. And so he goes to Tarsus to preach the gospel there for sure. He would get more training there as well. And we're not exactly sure how long he was there, but he was there for about 10 years or so 
in Tarsus before he started his next missionary journey. And so he spends a significant amount of time there, and he's not mentioned all the way until Acts 11. So we've seen Saul both in Damascus and Jerusalem preaching the gospel, but also growing in Damascus through time. But he doesn't spend a lot of time in Jerusalem, but yet he has a brother in Christ in Barnabas who strengthens and encourages Saul in the gospel. No doubt if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here today, you've had an older Christian at some point come into your life and show you what it means to follow Christ and help you grow in your faith. Someone who is in encouragement to you. And I think this is a big part of Saul's theology. In fact, I want to take us on a little trip around his letters just briefly so that we can see this. First, turn to 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, talking about divisions and different struggles they were having. And look at verse 14. I don't write these things to you to be ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He was like a spiritual father to them, and they were like his children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 16. That's the key. Therefore be imitators of me. He later will talk about how he sent Timothy there to encourage them and to strengthen them in their faith. Flip over to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 11, verse 1, which is really talking about the end of chapter 10. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul, as part of his theology, wanted people to imitate him and to learn from him. Now, how many of us could say, hey, you're a new Christian. Watch how I live. Do the things that I do. Live the way that I live. Even when I don't think people are watching. Model after my life. And I know I don't want that kind of pressure sometimes. I don't want people to look at what I'm doing in my private life, in my personal life. And yet Paul, not to be proud, but to be a good spiritual father, encouraged younger believers in the faith to watch him and model after him. Look at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, we looked at this passage at the beginning of the year. It's a passage about the body of Christ and We see in verse 11 how God gives the church gifts and pastors and teachers and apostles and evangelists to build up, to edify the body of Christ so that it can grow together. And I love how this little section ends. Look at verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's not just pastors who can do this, but the body of Christ builds itself up. Members of the body of Christ can edify and encourage one another in the faith. You might think you can come here on a Sunday morning and you can sit in your chair 
and not edify someone. But if you're part of the body of Christ, you are affecting it in some way. If you stub your toe, you're going to feel that toe pain in some way. It may not be unbearable, but it still will hurt. The body of Christ builds itself up. Even just by you being here, singing with your church family, listening to God's word, talking to them, encouraging them, you can be part of building up the local church. Look at Philippians 2. Right after Ephesians, Philippians 2, Paul gives them an example in Christ of how to be humble. But then in verses 19 through 30, he gives them two men that they should model, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who were faithful servants in Christ. Again, this idea of older Christians who would model and help encourage younger Christians Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In verse 12, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Verse 14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. He wanted the Thessalonians to in turn, to help build up the body of Christ. Now that's not an easy thing to do. He gives specific instructions for how to help different people who are weak, who are lazy, who aren't doing what they're supposed to. But notice what he says to do for all people. Be patient with them all. How many times are we impatient with other Christians? Do they not do what, they, what we want them to do? And so we can grow tired and impatient with them. A great passage. You can spend more time looking at it to see how you should help encourage believers in Christ. Two more passages. Look at 2 Timothy 2 briefly. 2 Timothy 2 in verse 1. You then, my child, he's talking to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is a premier passage on discipleship. This is Paul's last letter, we think, that he would write. And he writes it to Timothy. And he says, pass on the gospel. Pass on sound doctrine to others who can teach others also. This line of helping younger believers grow. And then finally, in a passage we should all know well in Titus 2, we looked at this at the beginning of the year. He tells Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And he says, hey, this is how you teach older men. This is how you teach older women, younger men, younger women. And the beauty of this passage is that the older men are teaching the younger men. And the older women are teaching the younger women. And it's part of God's beautiful process of discipleship. And as Paul writes, he wrote all these books, by the way, that we looked at. And there's many more that we didn't look at. And along the way, as he writes these passages, I can't help but think, and this is just speculation, that he thinks of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, 
who came alongside Saul when no one believed him that he was a Christian and took him to the disciples and stood up for him. Think about someone today that you can be a son or a daughter of encouragement to you. There's someone in your life, maybe in this church, maybe outside of this church, maybe in your family, maybe in your neighborhood, a new Christian, or someone even better you can share the gospel with. But someone you can help grow in the faith. You may never get recognition for it. You may never get a a pat on the back. In this life, no one may even know you tried. But we be like Ananias, who we looked at last week, who we hear nothing about in all of Scripture, but who shared the gospel with Saul. Do you have new believers in your life that you can mentor? Do you help share the gospel with them? Notice with me, finally, this last verse of our passage. And this is how I want us to close our sermon Verse 31, I want us to see the results of an edified believer. The results of an edified believer. Notice what happens. This is another summary statement that Saul uses. He says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit was multiplied. Now, some of this might have come just because Saul wasn't persecuting them anymore, and so they're thinking, okay, we can finally breathe a little bit. But the church, and this is the universal church, is edified through the ministry of Saul. Notice the different things they had. They had peace. They had peace. This feeling of security. That's not based on your circumstances. Would the church still be persecuted? Yes. Would the church still face trials and suffering? Yes. But yet they had peace. They had peace. Saul was preaching the gospel as a new believer. He was being built up and trained in the body of Christ. And it helps the church. Notice this isn't just in Jerusalem. It's in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. It says, secondly, it was being built up. That's that idea of edification, strengthened, encouraged. Believers aren't supposed to stand still in their walk with Christ. They are meant to grow and learn and develop. And maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you have hit a plateau, a stumbling block, a roadblock in your walk with Christ. And you know you're not walking with him like you should. And I encourage you to go to God's word, repent, and ask him to strengthen you again. And I would just say this. We should be spiritually mature to mentor younger believers. But sometimes the best way to grow in our walk with Christ is to help someone else who's younger than us grow and learn and be encouraged. It says, in walking in the fear of the Lord. They feared God. They were walking in him. And then lastly, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We again see the ministry and the presence of the Holy Spirit here in the book of Acts. This is just one new believer 
who's built up, who's growing, who's edified in the body of Christ. And yet the whole church is strengthened because of it. As I think about this passage, I think about my pastor who I had growing up for 14 years. And I've probably told this story here before, but when I was 13, 14 years old, I wasn't good at sports at all, and that doesn't surprise anyone. I didn't have really a niche, something I could get involved in. And he looked at me and he said, I want you to preach. I want you to try to preach. We had a teens involved competition through Word of Life where teens could go and preach and get training and ministry. And he looked at me and he said, I want you to try to preach. And I don't remember my first sermon. I imagine it wasn't probably any good. I hope I've grown a little bit since I was 13 preaching. But I do remember his encouragement, his friendship in my life, how he was faithful even till now. His church in Tennessee supports me and my ministry here. He's been a faithful mentor in my life. And it's not always been as close as it could be. We went in different directions to different ministries. But every time I opened God's word, it was his encouragement, his friendship, and his love that I still remember to this day. And I know that's why I am here and able to preach to you this morning. Now, you might say, I'm not a pastor. I don't know who I could encourage. I'm sure you could find someone to help grow in their faith, to help become a better disciple of Jesus Christ, and to help grow in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for great mentors and friends in my life who from a young age taught me your word and who helped me learn and grow in the faith, who told me when I was wrong and needed to be corrected, who helped me understand God's word and what was right. God, would you help us this morning to find others in our lives that we can encourage, that we can strengthen, that we can love. God, be with our church. May we be able to reach out to a great number of people, not to have pride or to build ourselves up, but, Lord, so that you would be honored and glorified through us. And now as we look towards communion, would you help us to remember the gospel, which is the very reason we are here. In Christ's name, amen.